Holy God, it is the wise and ancient ones who tell us that we not only can gaze upon God in prayer, but that after a while of walking with you, we can gaze out at the world from you. And we can begin to see people and the world and things the way that you see. And I think it is this that we celebrate and revere in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we give thanks for his courage, for his ability to follow prophet and savior Jesus into imagining and working toward the kingdom of God. We celebrate and we give thanks for the dream that you buried so deep within his heart that nothing could stop him. And we ask that you would also share that dream deep within us, that you would make us your church, a people so enamored, so captivated by the reality of your kingdom that we would long for, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness that is justice and mercy. We ask, Lord God, that you would not allow us to be so discomforted by tension in our surroundings that we are unaware of how long and how difficult these tensions have been going on. The tension that our brothers and sisters of oppressed peoples have felt for generations. Help us, Lord, only to find comfort in the true peace and the justice, the equality, the wholeness, and holistic healing that you offer. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us to be faithful witnesses of your good kingdom. And we pray that even in our own city, ludicrous though it seems to say out loud, we pray that one day, because of your work in our world, you would not be able to tell a difference between the south side of Oklahoma City and the north side of Oklahoma City, or the east side of Oklahoma City, or the west side of Oklahoma City. These are big dreams. We long for the kingdom that you have said is now breaking in among us. So we ask that you too would gather us to yourself that we would begin not only to look upon you, God, but that we would look out at the world from your perspective and that our lives, our congregation, our work in this world would be shaped by the way you see things. And we ask this in the courageous, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon this evening is given to us from a dear friend of mine, 
Reverend Stephanie Rowinski. She uh, was serving on staff at Bethany First Church of the Nazarene when I first met her over 10 years ago. And she and Pastor Chris Pollock served there for, um, I think, seven years together or somewhere around there. Um, before she and her husband Jason moved back to Kansas City for ministry for a time, and now they have relocated again in Oklahoma City. Stephanie is uh, ordained in the Anglican Communion and currently serves as a workplace chaplain, and we are incredibly grateful for her ministry, for her life, and for her taking um, this scripture to heart this week and sharing it with us. So I invite you to welcome our friend, Stephanie, as she comes to prepare the word for us today. Well, grace and peace to you. I want to make sure I have this whole Britney Spears setup working so you can hear me okay. Excellent. I love preaching with these. It's so fun. Well, grace and peace, I'm so glad that you're here. I invite you now, would you stand with me as a way to honor the reading of God's word? We are continuing hearing Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a very familiar passage, and so some of the common items might lose a little bit of their impact. The fact that we've heard these probably parts of those passages you were saying along with me now, I think on the screen it was NIV and I was reading from NRSV if you were wondering a little bit about the difference. But you could probably um, say those verses if I asked you, you could fill in the blank. I mean, how many different kinds of salt do you have in your kitchen or know about? So I just made a list because it seems like it's everywhere, right? So there's pink Himalayan, Super fancy, you can buy it at TJ Maxx. Um, sea salt, right? That's a good one. Kosher salt. Coarse salt, because I don't know why, but it's there. Um, with the iodine, iodine, right? Not iodine, you think it is, and then on the internet it says it isn't. I don't know. I'm not a salt person, turns out. There's also the salt you sprinkle on the sidewalk that you should not keep in your kitchen. Um, that should be in the garage, you know, so you don't slip when it's super icy. 
It's around us everywhere. We don't even think about it. And what about light? I mean, we have electricity. We don't even need candles anymore. We have them for ambiance, right? We have candles so we can have hygie, or whatever that word is and how you say it, the one where you have your socks match your house decor and you drink hot drinks, you know, the cozy thing. That's why we have candles. We don't need them for light. We don't even need fire. We have pretend fires now because we have heaters. So what does all this mean? You know, I have two young kids, so I don't even want light anymore. I have all the blackout curtains in the world, and I have them, like, taped against the windows because light's not a thing in our house. Growing up, we had touch lamps. Are they still around? You touch it, and the light comes on because it's not good enough that you have a switch. Now you have to touch it. We also had the clapper. Um, Clap on. Clap off. Um which was really great when my sisters and I were arguing because then it would like come on and then come off and then come off. So our arguments were peppered by light flashing. That's when we knew we were in a really good argument, when we could get the clapper going. We now even live in a world where scientists are studying light pollution and the effects it's having on the migratory patterns of birds because we can build giant lights and shoot them into the air now. It's crazy. Think about like the Las Vegas Strip or New York City. Or have you been to Times Square? I went to Times Square. I don't know if it was day or night because it all looks the same. There are so many lights. So how do we hear this kind of a passage in a way that even has an impact for us? What if we could step back a little bit from our modern conveniences for just a moment So we might have a chance to feel the impact of Jesus' words. I came across this story, actually, before Chris even asked me to preach, and before he asked me to preach on this passage, so I'm going to share it with you um, as what I take a providential um, Twitter moment from the Lord. In 1978, four geologists were serving mountains in Siberia from a helicopter, And they glimpsed what they considered to be the impossible, a man-made garden on the side of a mountain in Siberia, 150 miles from the nearest point of civilization. It was considered impossible to survive out there, and yet, unmistakably, there was a garden. So they find a place to land, they hike to the spot, and they discover a small hut. Now, one of the people who found it said he wouldn't have even realized it was a hut or that anyone could possibly live there except there was a small window the size of like the pack the pocket of his backpack and so he thought it had to be a habitation so they walk up and a man comes out of the hut with a long beard and makeshift clothes so they said greetings grandfather we have come to visit and after an uncomfortable silence the man said well since you've traveled this far you might as well come in So they go in to see this home, and they meet... Now, I'm going to butcher these Russian names, and if you speak Russian or are Russian, will you forgive me? And afterwards, you can tell me how they're really supposed to be said. So they meet Karp Lykov and his family. They were old believers. It was a part of um, a group from the Russian Orthodox Church who had refused to assimilate to changes that were made in the 17th century... They had kind of carried on, and they had held out. They were called old believers, and they 
from the beginning faced persecution, as you can imagine. Their situation reached a breaking point when Karp's brother was killed by a Bolshevik patrol. So he, his wife, and his two children fled with nothing that they could carry beyond what they could carry on their back. And they made their way into the wilderness. They had two more children there, but eventually his wife died of starvation. They said there were some rough years where there was nothing, um, but they eked out a living. So by the time those geologists found them, 40 years had passed. They knew nothing of current events like World War II. They had no idea it had taken place. They were introduced to modern conveniences, like you can guess it, the television. Can't you imagine? They were like, look, it's a box, and there are pictures, and they move. You know, everyone's so excited about the TV. They also were shown the circular saw. But what Carp was most excited about is when the geologist arrived with salt. He said it was true torture to live without salt. Three of the children died a few years later. Carp, not many after that. So there is now only the daughter, Agafia, who still lives alone in the forest. Though she is not unknown, and many bring her gifts of seeds for her garden, um, because of her beliefs, she doesn't keep anything with a barcode on them. Um, She empties the bags and burns them immediately. It's part of the old believer thing. She says she can't breathe the city air, And she can really only tolerate the water from the river by her house. So a documentary team went in to get to know her and tell the story of her life. And when they asked her if she thought life was better before or after being introduced to society, um, because she still remains in the forest, now completely alone, she replied, back then we had no salt. Back then we had no salt. Now let's hear again the first part of our gospel reading. You are the salt of the earth. That changes it a little bit, doesn't it? You are the salt of the earth. Salt is the most indispensable necessity of life. The human body can't live without it. It's needed to transmit nerve impulses, Contract and relax muscle fibers, including those in your heart and your blood vessels. You maintain a proper fluid balance with it. When sodium is in short supply, a host of chemical and hormonal things go on, and they signal your body to hold on to water and conserve the sodium. Now, you might be someone who eats too much salt, and your doctor might tell you to cut back, but they'll never tell you to cut it out completely because your body can't function without it. You are the salt of the earth. Now, Christians do have a reputation for being salt, but unfortunately, a lot of times, it's along the lines of being salt in a wound. How many stories do you know, some of them maybe being your own, where people have been deeply hurt by Christians, deeply hurt by the church, Is that the kind of salt that Jesus is calling for here? Really make it burn, guys. Leave them with a limp. I don't think so. Salt was and is preservative. Brings flavor. It was used for purification. It was used in sacrifices. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about the passage we read. The disciples, then, are the highest good, the supreme value which the earth possesses, for without them it cannot live. And what about light? Even in Oklahoma, where hills are scarce, we get the idea of a city on a hill. But there is some imagery at work that we might initially miss. A city on a hill to Jesus' hearers would have easily been understood to be Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Now, even if they had seen other cities on hills, their thoughts would have drifted there naturally. Also, Israel was called to be a light to the nations in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus says, you inherit that. Salt in the Old Testament was used in binding of covenants to suggest their permanence. So salt and light both have good, important qualities for life that we naturally think of, preservative, flavorful, celebration, warmth. But if we keep those Old Testament illustrations in mind, we hear Jesus telling the disciples, Those who are listening then and there, the ones who just heard, blessed are you, when they feel the absolute opposite of that, those there will be God's covenant witnesses in the world. They will bless the world. The world will be better because they are in it. As Israel was called to be a blessing to the world, the followers of Jesus received that same call that same mission. That's good news. Then Jesus moves on to these verses that seem really quite confusing. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, the law will not pass away, and those who obey it will be called great in the kingdom. And then he ends saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, But the stories about the Pharisees that I'm most used to are when Jesus is like, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. And you're like, yeah, get him, Jesus. (laughs) Or you like laugh along from the distance, the safe distance of 2,000 years when he's like taking him to the carpet when they try and trap him. And he's like, or give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And they're like, ah, that's so good. (laughs) Right? This feels totally different. What is Jesus up to? It isn't the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that he's talked about fulfillment. Do you remember the story of his baptism? Jesus goes to John to be baptized, and John wisely says, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But do you remember what Jesus says in response? Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew's also up to something in his references. Do you remember when in chapter 1 it says the virgin shall be with child and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us? Matthew goes through, he says, okay, it's going to be a virgin, going to be called Emmanuel. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be called out of Egypt. He's going to grow up in Nazareth and be called a Nazarene. He's going to make his home in Capernaum. And every time he says, to fulfill what the scriptures have said. Now Jesus openly declares that he has come to fulfill those scriptures. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. Jesus relives the story of Israel, but at every turn chooses faithfulness to God, obedience, suffering, love. 
Jesus shows us what a life lived in perfect unison with the Father looks like. And it surprised everyone. The religious elite and those religion declared were nobodies. So what we see then in, the, in this passage and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the part that comes next where Jesus has the famous, you have heard it said and I say to you, what we see is a continuation, a clarifying a restoring of original intent of the Old Testament, not abandonment of it. The Hebrew scriptures were held in the highest regard in Jesus' time and by Jesus. So Josephus was one of the great um, historians of the time, and he wrote this. He boasts about the law, and he says, For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a syllable And it is an instinct with every Jew from the day of his birth to regard them as the decrees of God, to abide by them, and, if need be, cheerfully to die for them. So before any example of Jesus' interpretation of the law is given, the listeners are warned, don't conclude that Jesus annuls or contradicts it. Given the way that the law was held, the sanctity to which it was held to, This potentially confusing passage aims to stop any allegations that Jesus was a false prophet leading Israel astray or that his followers were a godless and lawless sect. No, he says, I have come to fulfill it. The law and the prophets faithfully express God's will, but the phrase, I have come, reveals Jesus' special status. Jesus comes as one with a particular mission. So does this matter to us? Or is this like a first century thing? It matters because we frequently read the Bible like the Old Testament doesn't matter. We might even believe outright that that's the case. Or we might not even realize we hold that belief, but our practical life says that. We can easily fall into that trap. It's something that the Church Universal has dealt with from the beginning. So it helps us to know what is going on here so we don't consciously or subconsciously fall into the trap of ignoring the Old Testament. The Old Testament were the scriptures that Jesus studied, loved, relied on during his temptation. They were the scriptures he taught from. Remember, he goes to the synagogue and says, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. But because Jesus is God with us, as Matthew one twenty three tells us, the center of gravity shifts to him. The law and the prophets, they remain, but Jesus is the canon by which we gauge obedience to the scripture and its sole interpretive guide. The next section on the Sermon on the Mount makes it clear that Jesus is the key for unlocking the meaning of the law and the prophets. The rest of the New Testament and the church then takes what it means to have Jesus as that interpretive guide, as the key, the center of gravity, and they read the Old Testament again and they wrestle with what that means. This is good news because Jesus isn't giving us another to-do list, another law. He is describing the with-God life that you already participate in. So the disciples then... We, then, must not think only of heaven. We have an earthly task as well. 
we should note Jesus calls not himself, but his followers the salt of the earth. Because he entrusts his work to us. We must remain faithful to the mission which the call of Christ has given us. And I have more good news for you. The you here, it's a y'all. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. It's corporate. It's plural. You're not expected to carry that alone. Salt for the world. Light for the world. It is not a closed fellowship. Here Jesus anticipates the end of the Gospel of Matthew when he says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of age. The corporate life that we share is to manifest itself in good works that function as beautiful pictures of God's love and faithfulness, God's character and nature, God's good care and invitation, God's redemptive purposes for the world. The scribes and the Pharisees had hundreds of laws that they lived by, trying to do their best to understand and live out the law that it was given to them. Jesus tells us we must exceed this to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What? How in the world? I thought we were talking about all the good news in this passage, right? The good news, it's not in our own strength, power, righteousness, or ingenuity. It is possible because Christ lives in and through us. Jesus fulfilled the law. He lived the life of the faithful Israelite. Jesus lived perfectly, faithfully obedient, in complete unison and partnership with the Father. So our righteousness exceeds that of the the Pharisees and the scribes when we live obediently following Jesus. Because then Jesus' life is lived through us. That's good news. Every week we gather, we come to the table. We come to receive the very presence of Jesus in our lives, making this kind of faithful obedience, this kind of fellowship with God, this kind of inviting life that might be described as salt and light possible. And it's really ordinary stuff, isn't it? Juice, gluten-free crackers... In those ordinary, everyday kinds of things, a little bit like salt and light, Christ's presence is made manifest in us so that his life inhabits our life and gets lived out through us. So we don't have to worry about mustering up the strength or mustering up the courage or mustering up the wherewithal to figure out how to outdo the scribes and the Pharisees. We receive, and we simply are. So I think as we come to the table tonight, it would be maybe helpful if we paused for just a few moments. Maybe you know 
the painful side of salt. Maybe you have some wounds that still really burn. Or maybe as you have been following Jesus, you've realized you have inflicted the painful side of salt. Maybe you've been feeling worn out from trying to let your light shine in what ends up feeling like an endless to-do list without any fruit. Maybe you desire a closeness with Christ that you don't have right now. Jesus is here for you. In fact, you're aware of those things because Jesus is at work in you, even in this moment. Jesus has a hope and a future for you and for all y'all. And so let's take a few moments just to pray. I invite you to be as honest with God as you want. God can handle it. And in just a moment... I'll close this in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word, for your good news that points us to you. We thank you for your love and your care. We thank you for your healing and your forgiveness. We thank you that you can handle our anger and our disappointments and our frustrations and confusion. We thank you that you don't leave us in those places. So as we come, Lord, we open our hands and our hearts and our minds and our whole life to receive you, our life. And we pray that when the story of 8th Street is told, and when our story is told as part of that, that people will say, back then there was no salt. Be present to us in these moments as you have been all service. We thank you. Pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.